Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Competitive Enablement Show on the Compete Network powered by Clue. This is the podcast for product marketers and competitive professionals looking to give their company a competitive advantage. I'm your host, Adam McQueen, and today it's season three. Happy season three, Ben. Happy season three, everyone. I really can't believe we made it this far. Uh, It's going to be our best season yet. And I'm not just saying that. Well, I might just be saying that. It's something you kind of say at the beginning of a season, but we're going to make it our best one yet. Right, Adam? We hope it will be the best season yet. I'm fired up for it. And we had an awesome guest to join us to kick everything off. It was Devin O'Rourke, the founder and managing partner over at Fluvio, a product marketing consultants firm and host of a brand new show on the Compete Network, Embracing Erosion, where he talks to different go-to-market leaders, investors, CEOs about how they carve competitive advantages for their own company. It's um, It was really cool talking with Devin because it's a different lens. We often talk to folks in the CI space, the product marketing space, the Compete world. And his show, he's gonna be talking to the executives that need that competitive information, need to be informed, but they're not necessarily the folks in the weeds as much. So it was really interesting getting his take as sort of the person that bridges the gap between the stuff that happens in the world of Compete and what execs need to care about. Admittedly, I didn't realize how much of a linchpin and uh, how much of a versatile player the go-to-market leader has to be. And someone like Devin, who's giving advice on how to go to market, you really do need kind of an understanding of all of the different pieces, um, a lot like a product marketer too, right? You need to have several distinct tools to be a strong product marketer. Um, and I don't want to spoil too much in the episode, but Devin even gives a nod to the product marketers as the ones who really are the connection pieces. Um, you have to have the vision. You have to have you know the hard data and the hard skills. But the soft skills, the connection, the relationship building is really valuable. So that was a surprise for me. Yeah, he, he gets into it a lot. One of the cool things he talks about is... I mean, his philosophy around what what he's seen successful go-to-market leaders do so far is to embrace erosion and embrace change, move quickly, be nimble. And it was really cool. Like, sure, that's a broad answer, but that really permeates in many different ways. And I think that kind of speaks to how broad there's a lot of decisions. There's a lot of things that need to be done in that go-to-market, whether it's your pricing decision, whether it's a new product you you're bringing to market and there's so many decisions that need to be made and bringing it back to sort of our core show, our core audience. He really talks about the importance of having a really clear understanding of where your company, your product, your solution fits within the market in context to competitors and where your value sits compared to competitors. And it was really interesting to get that take from him when he's, when he's speaking to these executive leaders are making decisions like that. What I what I really took away from it was that, you know, the research and the the thought you put into a product launch before is is so essential. You need to know your your market ecosystem. He mentioned that often a big mistake he sees is that people are a little too rushed for results now. They're looking for pure outbound work and results now. And uh, that's a good reminder for all of us to you know, not get too over anxious with things and to understand, hey, if we really want to do this product justice, we really want to bring it to market and give it the credence it, it deserves, 
um, you got to know your landscape. You got to know the field you're playing on. Um, and it was so cool to hear that from Devin's mouth because I feel like we've heard it a few times here and there. But he's really in his show, I think, is really kind of putting together a bunch of pieces uh, and filling a bit of a gap we had on the network. So I'm really excited to to have him on. Absolutely. Me too. This is going to be an awesome show. It just started a few months ago, Devin. Can't wait to help kind of accelerate it, bring it, bring it to more folks. And I think for anyone in our audience space, I, you've got to give this thing a listen. It's, it's, uh, it's very, very similar topics, discussions, but maybe just a slightly different lens on everything. So with that all said, let's get into our conversation with Devin O'Rourke. All right. Today I am joined by Devin O'Rourke, the founder and managing partner of Bluvio, a product marketing consultancy, and host of a brand new show on the Compete Network, Embracing Erosion. Devin, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Pleasure to be here. So let's get right into it then. I I kind of I came in hot, shared the the big news that came out last week. Embracing Erosion, your brand new show on the Compete Network. Uh, everyone, check it out in the show notes. But can you tell us a little bit about what is Embracing Erosion? Yeah, well, thanks for the promo. And uh, yeah, it's only been about just over two months. So absolutely thrilled to be included in the Compete Network. And it's a show that... Um, is long form. So it's generally a 45 minutes to an hour. I sit down and I discuss a variety of topics with product marketers, investors, and general sort of go-to-market leaders, founders, CEOs, people that have built companies, led teams. Essentially, the show is about highlighting folks who have been able to take changes head on, uh, absorb them, and turn them into competitive advantages. Uh, but it's it's sort of, you know, it's a deep dive. We we sort of go all over the place, but that's sort of the, the anchor. There's five, six episodes out right now. So folks, you can jump in early here. This is going to be, I'm excited for what's in store with this show. I want to know as well, what was the inspiration? What what made you decide, I want to I wanna start this show talking with investors, product marketers, go-to-market leaders? Yeah, well... I suppose the inspiration is just my day-to-day. So running a product marketing consulting firm, I generally am speaking with a number of you know, exceptional leaders in the tech space and people that I really respect and admire. And I'm sort of helping them and they're helping me. And I, I often am just having these conversations that I find interesting and I sort of would like to expose those conversations to to folks in my network. Um, and I think there's a lot to learn from, from, from a number of, of different folks, whether they are sort of VCs, um, whether they're heads of product marketing, whether they're CMOs or founders of C- and CEOs that have sort of started companies from scratch. Um, there's definitely some sort of synergy between all of those roles. Uh, and I just wanted people to be able to learn from some of these from these folks these folks. Where's the name come from? The name. So embracing erosion is, is actually Fluvio's tagline, if you will. So it's our version of Nike's just do it. Um, Fluvio, the name for our company 
is a play on the fluvial process, which is the process of erosion. If you studied science in school, maybe you'll remember. Frankly, I did not remember, but that anyway, that's that's where it comes from. And the reason behind that sort of tagline is our belief that successful companies and leaders, specifically in technology, are those that are able to embrace change um, and not fight it. Uh, those that are fighting change are going to find themselves in really difficult circumstances. And so we really encourage our clients to look around the competitive landscape, identify changes and trends, and instead of sort of fighting them, really lean into them and, and be sort of early entrants. So you mentioned sort of that the tagline as well of the show that you're speaking to go-to-market leaders that are carving out competitive advantages for themselves and their companies. I mean, compete here at Clue is, that's, that's what this is show is about. There's going to be a lot of product marketers, compete professionals, folk product marketers that might have some level of compete in their, in their job description. And so I wanted to dig a little bit because I love, that's the, that's the thing that hooked me right away was that, that line. I think it's a great line to, to sort of promote and sell the show. In some of the conversations you've had with these go-to-market leaders, these investors, these CEO, CEOs in your career so far, what are some examples of what you've seen the best leaders do to gain this competitive advantage? Well, first, they hire Fluvio. I think that's the first. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course, but uh, so, some do. Um, but no, I think the best leaders and go-to-market leaders, I think you know th those can fall into various departments, but um, the best really understand that there are structural sort of foundational elements that they need to install within their companies before they sort of hammer the market and prospects with their messaging. That means that they have to be thoughtful. They have to listen to customers. They have to do the research and invest in, you know, customer interviews. Um, and, and then they need to formulate some strategies to test. All of this needs to happen before you sort of go in full frontal with these outbound strategies. Um, those that are not successful are generally those that uh, are just looking for, for pure outbound work and production now. We need pipeline now. And they don't recognize that you need to really invest in some of the you know, foundational elements. And that's research uh, in addition to processes um, like you know, go-to-market tiering, uh, how do product, product marketing, and marketing all work together What's the handoff look like between those departments and sales? Um, you know, a lot of these things are either ignored or pushed to the side. Um, and the, the best folks in the space realize that that is a missed opportunity and they actually spend the time and invest in those areas. That's interesting. Is there, is there maybe like a balance? Because you, what you mentioned there is sort of the people that dive headfirst in without thinking through a plan or researching are the ones that aren't setting themselves up for success. But then as well, you mentioned sort of the whole concept of your show is folks that are embracing erosion, willing to adapt to change, kind of move on the fly a little bit. So is there sort of like a, a balance between that, that what you mentioned there before you go to outbound and start doing, but you also need to start doing at some point? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that goes into 
I guess, the speed at which to make decisions. Um, because you're investing in some of these foundational elements, it doesn't mean you're moving slowly. In fact, you should be moving exceptionally fast. You know, be the best leaders move really quickly and they understand that decisions, most decisions are two-way doors. And I've actually talked about this concept in almost every episode so far on embracing erosion. And that a lot of people are hesitant to make decisions and they feel like once they make them, it's, you know, it's done. The reality is, is there's almost no decision that's, uh, that's a one-way door. And this is a concept that I learned at Amazon and it's since sort of proliferated everywhere. Um, but, you know, I, I would say that the best leaders, you know, understand that and they move really, really quick. They encourage their team to be nimble. Um, they make fast, iterative decisions that they can learn from. They can then adjust and and optimize. So, you know, I, I think that there's this like never ending loop when it comes to implementing uh, a go to market process or framework. Is there an example that like sticks to you maybe earlier in your career where you noticed that that you where someone maybe there was someone maybe it was a company you're working for or a leader that you was that you looked up to that you're like oh wow that's how the that, that's that's how people should be operating oh good question i mean i actually think i have a lot i mean i have a lot of great former managers that i really look up to some of which i will have on the show but i would say at the at a higher level at a company level i actually experienced the opposite where i saw what not to do um, <laughs> and i won't name names but there are there are definitely some companies um that are slower moving and don't promote the concept of of speed is greater than perfection and i was personally bothered by that and then you know within within these companies you know you'd see the folks that did want to move fast and were able to do so and you know push and so i guess i respected those folks but for the most part it actually came from being frustrated at the lack of movement and speed from some of the larger companies i've worked at amazon actually does a really good job of this so i don't want to bucket Amazon into this, they like the way that company is built is, uh, you know, putting chips in a lot of different areas and investing in areas, creating very small teams with autonomy so that things can move fast and actually create friction with another teams. So they've done a really good job, even as they've grown into this enormous like behemoth of being fast and nimble and thinking uh, in that in that way. What what causes companies or or folks to if, like you mentioned, that being frustrated, the companies that are more slower moving, do you, is there a kind of core reason you've seen that limits companies in that way? I mean, bureaucracy is one of them. Yeah. I think some teams get really large. Amazon, again, has made this like, I think it's two this concept of a two pizza team. Like if you can't feed a team with two pizzas, then it's, um, it's too big. So I think part of it is that. Um, and then just culturally, I think a lot of these companies don't instill a sense of ownership and promote making fast, iterative decisions and learning from them. As long as the downside of a decision isn't catastrophic and putting the company at risk, then I'd argue it's worth pursuing. The word bureaucracy, I think I just got a little shiver down my spine. So, yeah. so what are some of the, we mentioned there, that's something you see folks that aren't as successful um, do to sort of pretty much an unwillingness to, again, embrace erosion, act nimbly, work quickly, make decisive yeah. calls. What are some 
mistakes or misconceptions do you think people have around go-to-market right now? Yeah, something that we've written about a lot at Fluvio is the fact that we think the go-to-market process is cyclical and it's not linear. And so I think a lot of companies will think about what it takes to bring a product to market and they think there's like building blocks and then you get to the end and you've launched the product and you kind of wipe your hands clean and then maybe make some adjustments for the next launch, but that's that's sort of done and over with. Um, we don't see it that way. We believe that this ideal go-to-market model is cyclical in that it's a circle and there is actually this sort of accelerator or crank at the end of the model. It's hard to uh, you know, articulate this. If you, if you look at our website, you can see an illustration we've built, but there are things to do post-launch that will feed into optimizing the inbound phase of the go-to-market process. So that research, that persona development, ideal customer profile, positioning and messaging, all of that is actually sort of living and breathing. And after you launch a product, you should be putting in place, per, uh, for example, uh, product adoption analysis, voice of customer programs, uh, win-loss analysis, all of which should be uh, feeding back into the first couple stages of a go-to-market process so that it's forever evolving and, and perhaps you know speeding up should be a well-oiled machine. This actually, I feel like this segues nicely. Like I mentioned, a lot of our audience here, there's probably a good intersection with folks are in product marketing, but also run that kind of compete, competitive intelligence side of the coin. And when you mentioned that, it's always breathing. It's sort of like what our vision, what we see with folks that run compete programs. It's not a set it and forget it type thing like a, a competitor's value prop, your own value prop in the market is changing. It's evolving over time. Right. So what I want to get into here is sort of when you, that competitive side or under, the understanding of the competitive landscape when it comes to go-to-market. Can you tell me about a time where you've seen a team um, go-to-market with either what uh, a new product or maybe a new v value prop or anything that anything that would come with that kind of go-to-market motion where they did or they didn't do their due diligence on the broader market and competitors? Yeah. I mean, there are plenty of companies that I don't think do a great job of, the, of this. Um, you know, we are working with a client right now uh, who I will not name for obvious reasons, but that I think is going about this sort of backwards and... What I mean by that is they're sort of relaunching uh, and replatforming what they offer. And their hope is that they're going to be able to penetrate a handful of new segments. And they're actually dramatically changing like who their audience will be, who their customers will be. And the impetus to this decision must have come from the board they have or, or someone in, in a position like that on their ex executive team. And... They're not really sure um, what, like, they're, they're very unsure of what ecosystem they're entering. They, they, they broadly sort of like know who the players are, um, but they're backing into how their new platform will win in that ecosystem. And they don't really know why a company in that space should, should go with their, comp their platform. And, so of course we're trying to help them and we're trying to back up and 
assess the ecosystem, actually question what they're building and help them think about what they should prioritize in their roadmap. Um, because I, you know, I, I don't think they're approaching it from the right angle. I think a company should look at opportunities based on different competitive ecosystems, understand trends that are unfolding, look at the companies that are within that space, identify maybe a gap or a unique position that they could have, and then build for that. I don't think you should be building a product and then backing into and trying to find that. So the way you mentioned it, sort of the reverse engineering side of things is, yeah, that's, it, it, it seems from a, from a logical standpoint, and when we talked before this, when we, I don't want to, I don't want to spill the beans here on one of our rapid fire questions, but you're like, I, I'm a man rooted in logic more so than superstitions. And that's sort of like maybe a wishful thinking approaching it that way. And it also probably speaks to your first point around people that dive in and do, and then forgot to have that planning and researching element that will set you up for success and give you that advantage. Right. It also reminds me, um, uh, we, we spoke with Brian Murray, who's was the lead investor over at craft venture. So he sits in as, as a, uh, an investor with a ton of executive meetings. And he, he told me he can, he can tell immediately when he's talking with these executive teams, when someone understands the market, the ecosystem they're with, they're, they're working within and how they fit within this market and the folks that have not done their research on the landscape and his, his telltale line if if an executive team or 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 the go to market team doesn't understand that well is they'll say we're focusing on providing value for the customer that's his that's his red flags that's his red flag which it is They're a valid statement pretty, pretty generic but to your point yeah it is it is very generic a lot of our okay so a lot of our listeners support when you think of competitive intelligence and and working on that side of things, there's a lot of like the tactical side. So supporting revenue teams with with what they need to win deals today or from a CS side, a seller side. But what we're seeing increasingly is go-to-market leaders need to be informed, like you mentioned, on their competitive landscape in order to make some of these actually like bigger strategic decisions. When you've worked with some of these different folks, what's the level of detail you think that these go-to-market leaders need on the competitive landscape? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I think realistically leadership, and when I say leadership, it would be, you know, think C-suite and boards of companies and investors, I suppose. Those folks should have a firm grasp on the ecosystem that they're operating in. You know, how large is it? Where's the best opportunity? What are the trends? What's the timeline on those trends, et cetera? They should know what the perception is of each player in the space. So who's sort of like the most well-regarded, who's the leader, who's the laggard. And they should have a, a take on their position in that ecosystem. Now, I don't think that they're required to go super deep on each player. They shouldn't know like at the feature level how to compete in like hand-to-hand combat with, uh, with every player in the space you know they don't need to be winning deals themselves that's down to like you know aes and and folks on the sales floor but they should have this more macro view on the space they operate in what's happening how's that space evolving over time and what's their unique position like if you're gonna put a stake in the ground for for their company what is that stake 
And then everything downstream of that, I think, you know, we can pass over to uh, people sort of at the at the ground level on the sales floor who are having those conversations. This is an interesting conversation because I, I'd, I'd love to get your take because the C-suite need to know that, the ecosystem, they don't need to know the nitty gritty details, but they do need to know these things and they can't do that research themselves. It's upon either a product marketing team or if you have a dedicated compete team to be delivering those insights. Have you seen within your client base or throughout your career, teams that have done that well, have laddered up this sort of information to the C-suite? Yeah, I mean, I think companies that value product marketing uh, as a practice, the way it should be valued, will get will get that sort of output from the team. They'll generally be, you know, sort of um, a leader in the C-suite that oversees product marketing, whether that's the CMO, CPO, I've actually reported into a COO, chief operating officer before. It doesn't really matter who it is, but whoever the product marketing leader sort of like has a dotted line into, that person is going to be um, in a position to to make sure that the executive team is aware of these things and injecting that regularly into their conversations. So kind of a broad answer, but yes, I think the the types of companies that value product marketing have built out you know, well-functioning product marketing teams, those are the ones that are able to be successful thinking at this sort of like macro level. I got to do a, a shameless plug as well for folks listening to this episode. We actually did just run a replay from one of the sessions at Compete Week last year by Tara Scott. And our whole session was around that, like briefing execs with competitive intel. And I loved her sort of concept of like market mapping with the executive team. It was one of like the like one of her go-to tools for sort of presenting that macro view in a way that's pretty digestible and still like relevant to to that sort of leadership audience because there is some it's it's totally different how you deliver information to reps in the field tactical and tactical information things that will be used like you mentioned hand-to-hand combat compared to how you deliver information to execs right yeah absolutely there's a difference I will say there's also other more like ad hoc ways to do this and, and workshops is one um, we found to be super successful in our client engagements, working in an executive leg- level workshop to sort of level set on what they consider to be their competitive space and their unique position within it so that we get alignment across the board very early on. And then we also run a workshop service standalone from our um, client engagements that digs into this as well. So sometimes it's good to just carve out dedicated time to get everyone in a room and explicitly discuss these things because oftentimes you know they're not the core part of the conversation that's a great point alignment obviously across numerous stakeholders especially at at that exact level are there are there any things you can share from your what you do within your workshop i won't make you reveal all of your secrets but things that work to get alignment if i'm thinking as a listener here and i've got that opportunity maybe to get in front of my executive team what are some of the things that you would do to get that alignment and generate sort of everyone rowing in the same direction in terms of how you perceive your competitors and your value prop within it yeah there's some upfront work that we ask people do beforehand um i think that's pretty critical so people spend independent solo time thinking about these things and then putting it sort of like pen to paper and then you know, creating a sense of openness before the workshop kicks off, we found to be critical. So, you know, there's probably going to be someone in that room that has a very um, 
specific opinion, strong-minded, um, not easily challenged. And this could be the CEO, but it's not always the CEO. And so we need to sort of like nip that in the bud really early on and say like ev everything is is very open here and we're going to purposely be pressing on some things that we know others, you know, maybe don't agree with. And that's that's the intention here. And then the third thing I'll say is it really matters who's in that room. Um, you need to have, it, inevitably we leave it up to clients who's going to be in that room, but we give them sort of guidelines. We want decision makers in that room uh -huh. and we want to make sure that there's like an openness in, in, involved. Yeah. I mean, this is, again, it's, there's a lot of hard skills that are required for being a good product marketer and specific into the world of compete, but there is this just soft skill element of how you communicate out across different stakeholders or understanding your different stakeholders, right? Oh yeah. It, I, I it, would argue that soft skills are actually more important than hard skills in product marketing. Um, specifically product marketing consulting, what we do yeah. obviously, but what I've found is product marketers make for great consultants because they have those soft skills. They understand how to build relationships across multiple departments. They understand that everyone has different priorities. They speak differently. They communicate differently. And um, they're pretty, generally, they're exceptional at sort of connecting the dots and forming those relationships. And nothing, if you're a product marketer and you don't have the ability to do that, none of your work is going to come to fruition. Just well, because we're, you know, oftentimes dependent on all of these other departments to, you know, bring our work to reality. All right. I've got a little rapid fire section for you. Disclaimer to the audience. These were written by producer Ben. I'm actually looking at them right now for the first time. And so I'm not liable for any of the questions or answers said in this rapid fire section. We ready to get into it, Devin? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Favorite job prior to your current role at Fluvia? Uh, I honestly have liked a lot of my jobs. Tough one. Um, there's actually only one that I really didn't like, which I won't cover. I guess my favorite would be my first job out of school. I was a photo editor for ESPN, the magazine, which was pretty cool because I loved photography, still do, and also have a love for sports. So sort of combined both of my passions. All right, rapid fire two then. Favorite sport and team. Favorite sport is golf for sure. I played golf in college. I wanted to be a professional golfer. I still play a bunch of golf. I'm obsessed with it. Um, favorite team would be the New York Knicks, which is a painful one. I'm sorry. But yes, I do still love them. You're a masochist. Give <laughs> our listeners a book recommendation. Yeah, uh, I'll give you two. Uh, Sapiens, I bet a lot of people have already read that, but it's just such a great book. And then from a business sort of marketing perspective, uh, a book called Different Escaping the Competitive Herd by Youngmi Moon, who is a Harvard Business School professor in marketing. Uh, it's very simple. It's built for product marketers specifically, but it's probably broadly applicable to anyone involved in marketing. Uh, very good book. Preferred O'Rourke, PJ or Beta? Yeah, I actually don't really know much about PJ. I read anything by him, but so I'll have to go with Beto. Uh, and I won't get into politics, but <laughs> I mean, Beto used to live in Brooklyn, I, be I believe, unless I'm wrong. And I know now he's in Texas, but I used to live in Brooklyn. My brother's in Austin, Texas. I'm going to go with Beto. All right. Your most superstitious superstition. I, Say that 10 times fast. 
Yeah, I really don't have any superstitions. I, I guess to your point, you kind of called me out. I'm, I'm fairly rational, maybe overly rational. Um, so I really don't believe in superstitions. I don't know if this is a superstition, but like I shower every morning, no matter what. I don't know if that's, <laughs> that's a general hygiene. No, no, no. Think like before skiing, sometimes people get up at five in the morning, like they're not going to shower before skiing. I, I shower before that. It basically, it doesn't matter what happens. Like I, I basically can't live in the morning without a shower before I, you know, get into this, my dinner. This has been a great conversation, but that is the worst superstition <laughs> I've ever heard. I don't step on the cracks on sidewalks. Do. I don't have one. I don't have a superstition. I just don't. <laughs> All right, Devin. With that said, I think it's time to wrap up this conversation before we go down some more rabbit holes here. <laughs> this is awesome. Again, everyone check out Embracing Erosion. How go-to-market leaders are creating competitive advantages by doing just that, embracing erosion. Devin, where can people re- where, where can people catch you? LinkedIn. LinkedIn is really the only place I live. Uh, I'm off of all other social media, so I've, I've solely focused on on LinkedIn. He's cleansed himself from all of the other platforms. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Devin, and we'll catch everyone next week. Thanks for having me on, Adam. Jody Geiger, Revenue Enablement Coach at Clue, and welcome to my new show, Winning as Women on the Compete Network. I will be joined by the best sellers, revenue leaders, and coaches in the world. Come for tactical advice from people overcoming the same challenges you are facing, and stay for real talk, exploring the moments behind the outward success. We'll go deep on topics like how to elevate as a seller, what makes a high value creating team, How can you make customer success a company-wide sport? And how to get an edge against the competition? And if the title didn't give it away, yep, the guests, they're mostly women. Why? Well, because it's mostly men giving advice on how to coach and lead in revenue teams today. We know representation matters and we want that next generation to only know a world where selling, leading, and driving organizations forward is equally done by all people. Listen to Winning as Women exclusively on the Compete Network and make sure to join us for our next event.